Welcome to Behind the Data, the podcast that takes you inside the world of market research and breaks down the topics we love to nerd out on. Today, we're chatting with Zandi Bramer, who, among a million other things, uh, oversees innovation within our consulting practice. I think your official title, Zandi, is Head of Client Innovation. Is that right? Correct. That's that is. a fancy kind of title. Yes. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. But Sounds before good. we do, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So I'm excited to talk about what your title even means. I feel like communications yeah. manager is easier to break down but what does I get that reaction a yeah. lot people ask me okay so but what do you do it sounds really cool but what is it um so so great first question so you you mentioned part of my role which is correct in that I oversee the innovation consulting practice at Euromonitor so we have a, a team of consultants that are partnering with clients on innovation goals and and priorities so we're we're informing and consulting them through those processes Another part of my role is actually thinking about and helping Euromonitor to innovate how we engage and offer our own services to clients. So to your point, multiple hats, it's sort of a dual part role, but but that's essentially what I um, am in charge of. So we've established what you do and what you're in charge of, but I'm going to take yet another step back. Mm-hmm. What does innovation even mean? I feel like it's this really sexy buzzword, but it can be a lot of different things to different people. So let's contextualize it for this conversation. Yeah, and another really great question because it's I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the word innovation because it's cool, it's it's eye-catching, and I think out the gate people think they know what it means. Um, but on the other end, it gets used a lot and very broadly and can be misinterpreted by many. So I think just to to step back, because this is actually a starting point I even have to have with my clients when I jump on a call and we want to start talking about, okay, um, here's where and how, you know, we might partner on on my innovation needs. Um, We begin with the basics of, okay, well, what does innovation mean to you? Um, And, you know, sort of textbook definition, there are really kind of three types or buckets, um, and they exist on an evolution in terms of innovation. So there is working on your core. So what I already do well today, my current portfolio, my current products and services, and you know, revamping those or improving and, and of course keeping that fresh. The second bucket is usually called adjacency or uh, looking at analogous categories. So sort of sister services or new spaces to my business or my portfolio, but I haven't really played there yet. And then the third, which is sort of further out innovation, is transformational or disruptive, which is completely new to the market um, and potentially doesn't even exist anywhere. So it could be, you know, a la the iPhone before that was a thing, right? And so I, I usually immediately kind of tease through that with clients because what it isn't is, is maybe just as useful as, as what it is. And I think a lot of people consider uh, just a, a packaging tweak or a lot of what ends up happening underneath the core to be innovation. And, and I would personally call that more like renovation, right? So it's it's still your house, uh, but you got new curtains or, or maybe you knock down a wall, uh, but at the end of the day, it's still a house. Um, and so there's a, a misconception of calling it all one word, innovation. And sure. I think the easiest way to explain it is to, to elevate it to maybe a conversation of, of layers and, and sort of further out from my comfort zone at the end of the day. And what I usually focus more on with clients are the, the further out areas, so completely new spaces and mm-hmm. potentially even completely new ideas to the world. So if we're using Apple and the iPhone maybe as an example to break down those three categories – like let's travel back in time. What would have mm-hmm. been their core? What would have been 
adjacencies or, or similar categories. And then we now know transformative or disruptive is sort of the, the end result that was the yeah. iPhone. Can you just to give us an example? Yeah, sure. So when I think back to, you know, Apple originated as a computer company, right? And then as they looked at um, extending into other adjacencies, they even looked at entering into music, right, with the iPod, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and then it was really when they kind of fused the idea of a phone and a computer into one that was something that hadn't ever existed. They took the idea of internet and, and made it mobile um, and, and combined so many things into one new improved super device that it really became transformative. So it wasn't jumping into another category and, and elevating it. It was actually creating a whole new one that no one had thought about before that. And they essentially you know, created the smartphone. Yeah, so no big deal. Just completely <laughs> revolutionize the way humans yes. do everything with this brand new category. Right, exactly. Aside from wild ideas, I mean, this doesn't sound like an easy feat talking people through, you know, all of these categories and and how to be disruptive versus, well, that's kind of similar to what you're doing. So what are some of the biggest challenges or roadblocks that you find when it comes to doing this type of thinking and when, you know, working on innovation with clients. When you talk about innovation, what what I could say, I summarize it as, is you're looking at things that are, um, in my kind of view, where it's the further out ideas, it's, it's either an entirely new product or format, a new experience, you're possibly either creating or playing in a new business model, you're going after a new segment you've, you've never engaged with in terms of consumers, um, and you're just, you're going out of your comfort zone like we talked about. Almost that like is, a pioneer, right? Like yes. uncharted Wild West kind of territory. Yeah. And it, even if it's um, an area that exists, but it's new to you and your company. So you're just out of your core competencies. Sure. And maybe you can leverage and springboard from some of your strengths, but it's certainly uh, unknown territory and you're pioneering, uh, if not for the entire world, for for your organization. And so it is it is hard and there are a lot of challenges. And if I were to step back and kind of think about and, and summarize what are some of the biggest questions and challenges that I see companies facing, if it's a large company, I think there is just a fundamental challenge. And, and I don't know the perfect equation of, of the right balance because I think, as with all great consulting answers, it depends <laughs> on, on, on who they are. But this idea of global versus local, how much of my innovation and what I am creating that's that's outside my comfort zone or, or even within my core should be focused on a, a global application, so where the world is heading at a high level, uh, versus looking at the local market and kind of doing almost like a from the ground up ideas and and inspiration. Uh, those are two sort of separate agendas and objectives, but how do you strike a balance? And, and that's probably the best word I would, I would use in terms of challenges is just finding balance and in, in innovation. So that's, that's one. Um, another area that I find that companies just have a difficult time balancing is, is big versus small. And what do you mean by that? So in the example of those three kind of categories, you really, if you think about having a set of projects on innovation at any given time, you should actually be working on various projects within all three. Clients really, and and just companies in general, always have a a challenge around, well, how much energy and resources should I put into renovating my core? How much should I be going after kind of some some safe but still uncomfortable bets, so those adjacencies? And then how much time, money, and energy do I put into the, the blue sky, really disruptive stuff that admittedly 
you don't know when or how it, mm-hmm. it might pay off, right? There are no kind of guaranteed bets in innovation. So are there any like balance. times or signals or things that you look for to help answer those questions? Uh, in terms of what sense? Where do you put your resources? Or Got it. Do you think big? Do you think small? Like how do you answer that yeah. question for a client? Yeah. So there's there's sort of the, the textbook uh, definition or, or sort of the, the how you should do it, right? So there's a, a, a technical balance. So there's a 100% pie. And if you took that pie, in theory, the way that, you know, textbook application, it should be 70% in your core, 20% in your adjacency space, and actually 10% of your resources and efforts should go into disruption. And the theory is that actually the, the reverse will happen in returns. So you're only going to get incremental gains on that 70% effort, but it's that that small portion that in the end, if you have that disruptive idea, will bring back the opposite, right? The 70% back in, in money and new revenue to your business. And so, so that I would say is just kind of a, a standard bread and butter equation, but as I mentioned earlier, it sort of depends. If, if you're in a tech space, you're probably going to pivot that disruptive to be right. bigger, right? If you're in milk or, or dairy, which is a pretty, you know... There's only so much you can exactly. do. Exactly. Some of the, the more, I would just say, established industries, there's still stuff you could do. And I'm not going to say there's not exciting stuff happening in milk in case anyone's in that industry who's <laughs> listening. But yeah, it, it just varies based on, I would say, the maturity level of your industry or your category. What about timing like thinking short term versus long term you know like what what time frames are we talking about yeah in, in these scenarios yeah that's sort of the third element that becomes really hard is just how do i balance short term demands of the business um and the longer term thinking so disruption is is lovely zandy but like you just said i don't know when or how that'll pay off and and i definitely don't know how much i'm sure that resonates real well with clients when you're like Meh. Yeah, it could be this, it could be that. <laughs> exactly. And so it goes back to that balance and that mix and, and not even just clients, but I'd say even our our, our own innovation is we wrestle with that at, at Euromonitor. Um, but essentially, it, it's again a balance you want to strike of making sure that you do have uh, some short-term wins and, and thinking, but you also are bold enough, brave enough, put your resources in some some longer-term plays. And I think that is is critical. And so if I were to kind of overuse one word in this equation of challenges, it's just all about the balance. And, and it depends on your appetite for risk as a company, where you sit, what industry you're in, um, and kind of how you're going to build your own strategy versus your competitors. And those are very challenging components of, of innovation. I can imagine. Um So given how challenging this is, are there some examples you can think of on maybe who's doing it right. I don't want to take a negative spin. So let's focus on some examples of who's who's taking this who's on very right. well. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, I'm tempted to name names, but I almost wonder you if don't it'll You want to kiss and tell? Yeah, kind of. And it also will a feel like I'm playing. Does, so. <laughs> and I am a lady, Sarah. Uh, no, I, I don't want to feel like I'm playing favorites with my clients either. Um, so I guess it could just me- be anybody. It doesn't have to be a client that you've worked with. So yeah. this may or may not be something that you've worked on. Right. And honestly, it's it's sort of like, well, what are the characteristics for success? And and I'll let listeners think about, okay, is this me or not? Um, so when I think about typical characteristics of companies that are, are getting it right, it's those that think about and and really take to spirit those areas of, of balance. So they're they're thinking both global and local, but 
you know, setting that up as conflicting goals is is a really big barrier. And a lot of companies do that wrong. So it's companies that separate their kind of global versus local. And then they incentivize those groups to work together. So global will focus on, you know, innovation ideas that could potentially work across the world or is coming from sort of the leading edge markets that they cover. The local teams are saying, well, this is what does work for me or won't or how we're going to have to tweak it to make it work um, in my market. So companies that have that kind of balance in a, in, a, in a good order and have the teams working together, I would say that they've got the right portfolio flow across those three different innovation types we talked about. Mm-hmm. And just brass tacks are dedicated to long-term thinking where they either have you know a portion of people's jobs in innovation, thinking longer term, building out a, a, a five-plus year kind of plan or, or pipeline, or better yet, they've actually got a whole team dedicated to it. And they've allowed those people to, to go off and be sort of the, the free-spirited long-term thinkers. And some, some companies, I'd say some of the best, are actually taking that group, physically moving them to new offices, putting them away from the business to say, you are meant to think different and be different. Still part of us, but you're going to be different. They're giving them cool names, and then they're giving them longer terms to come back with you know some, some proof points. Um, not that they get to go away for five or 10 years and it never come back, but they've got a little bit of a longer leash, so to speak, both geographically and then just in terms of expectations and and they're given a decent budget you know so they're given some means in which to do that and how do I join that team I know (laughs) (laughs) right exactly um the companies that are doing those things I I would say are the ones that are are really winning and if you're doing one or or the other that's okay but you kind of have to hit all three and and do it well sure so I'm really intrigued by this this cool kids club, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. How do they even go about doing this? How I mean, just to say, oh, think long term, dedicated to long term. What does that mean? How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there is no. I, I I get the jokes of like crystal ball, magic eight ball, all that yeah, good stuff. Yeah, little Ouija board action. Yes, yeah. exactly. We're old Summoning the spirits. Um, it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Just to cut to the chase. My childhood was a lie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. There, there are certain mechanisms and, and steps that you take when you are starting to think longer term and bigger picture. And one of those is just uh, looking at the trends that are happening around you. And that doesn't mean, a, you know, similar to innovation, trend is another word that gets a, a little used and abused in a lot of ways. Do you want to clear up any definitions <laughs> since we did with innovation? Sure, sure. So so trends, in a genuine sense, they can mean what's happening in my category. It could mean what's happening in my industry. But uh, we have a framework that we talk about, and, and it's a, a word that's out there. It's not something we invented, uh, but megatrends, right? So it's kind of taking it up to a higher level that's actually industry agnostic, category agnostic. And even beyond that, uh, we call them drivers. I've heard other clients call them macro factors, really the socio-demographic, economic, um, and, and other sort of higher level ways the world is evolving. So trends can mean all of those things across that spectrum. And, and that's where it gets kind of blurred. And I would say the longer term thinkers um, are really looking at trends, not at those lower levels, but at those highest levels. Can you share some examples of what those higher level trends are? Yeah. So one example would just be um, there's a lot of conversation just around population makeup and, and what it looks like. So uh, we are overall as a global 
group. We're just we're all aging, right? So people are having less children. Uh, they're they're choosing to to do so. Some people are opting not to have children. So just there's sort of a, a heavy top end of aging adults. We're also at the same time living longer, improving healthcare, et cetera. So that's just sort of, I would say, one of those macro trends at the highest level. That's just a fact and and a reality for tomorrow. So long-term thinkers are looking at those types of things um, or even, you know, another example, just environmental pressures. Mm -hmm. We know that we're going to run out of resources, that resources are getting squeezed. So they're looking at those higher level long-term things and saying, well, what needs and, and, and issues are going to evolve tomorrow when we have not enough young people to potentially care for or serve aging adults? Or as people live longer, what are they going to need or to be independent longer? Um, and as we have sort of environmental pressures, you know, we already know and see a lot of innovation around that of like, man, how do we, how do we curtail what's already happening sure. before it becomes a big issue later? So... I would say the long-term thinkers are really using tools like trends and, and trend frameworks, similar to what we built in terms of our megatrend framework, as one of their tactics. Another thing that they're doing in terms of long-term thinking, it's a, a similar theme, is is just going outside their industry. There's a lot of, of talk around um, and just books published that that genuinely explain that innovation is is actually pretty predictable if you're watching huh. the right things. So how so? Know, well, if we go back to Apple, I mm-hmm. guess, and and we say, okay, at that time, computers were taking off. They were making life easier, simpler, et cetera. And then as we looked at life and, and how it was evolving, if we look at those kind of higher level mega trends, people were getting busier. They were looking for ultra convenience because we were just trying to do more with, with less. And a computer was a great tool. At the same time, um, it was static. You know, it sat in one place. You had mm-hmm. to be there. You had to log in. So it was limited in how much convenience and immobility it could bring. You have the mobile phone, which took that same spirit of I want to be able to, to take calls and, and make calls wherever I am. So if you look at kind of, of the next level benefits and the way the world was evolving and our, our mentality and our needs, uh, it, it actually makes perfect sense that we would just marry those ideas and say, mm-hmm. okay, let's let's take that awesome tool here, take the mobility idea from over there, mash them together, and, and now you have a, a smartphone. And while it was brilliant in the, at the time, if you look back, you're like, well, well no kidding, right? So, <laughs> But hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's yeah. easy for us to say that now. Yeah. But yeah, like How in do you look the forward early two thousands, we were our heads were yeah. exploding that this was the coolest, craziest thing ever. Right, exactly. And so how do you was. how do you get predictive? Right, it is a yeah. big question. So so with that same kind of spirit, it's important to be looking at what's happening in other industries, especially if they're they're somewhat related. Right. So those were two electronics, you know, two kind of tech spaces. Um, take for example, packaged foods or, or food. You know, food should be looking at and, and is what's happening in, in beauty and personal care, uh, what's happening in consumer health, because in a very real way, those worlds are colliding. Um, but if you're paying attention to, to what's happening in one space and, and what doctors are pushing or what consumers are obsessed with when it comes to to one area, it's likely that that will then impact expectation and, and needs for another area. So to maybe put that into like a, a literal example. When everyone talks about disruption, another new one. Um, another fun buzzword. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Another new one. And, and another example that comes up that some purists might debate isn't true disruption because of the conversation I, I just mentioned of, of maybe not necessarily opening a whole new category or market for the world, but Uber, right? Mm-hmm. 
at a minimum, we can all agree, uh, whatever we call it at the end of the day, Uber was a brilliant idea and shook up how we transport. For sure. But if we think about the spirit of what Uber does, I mean, you used to order your cab for a, you know, a, a flight or whatever in the business world, let's say 10, 15 years ago, you might have to do it a day or a couple days ahead. You know, Uber has completely shifted the mentality of consumers to say, I can do it and have someone here within two minutes. I don't need to plan ahead. I don't need to worry about it. Not only that, I know exactly where they are at any given moment mm-hmm. of the day. Well, that has created in a way like a new mentality and expectation. It's created monsters out of us. And so now other industries are literally going, how do I Uberize healthcare? How do I Uberize market research? Grocery delivery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do I Uberize everything? Because what happens in one corner of a consumer's brain isn't as segmented as how we think it is. Like they don't necessarily think in clean cut industries and and whatnot. They just think in needs. I need things fast. I want to know where they are. I want to track them. And if I can do it there, I expect or I want it here. So, you know, when we order clothes now or apparel industries Mm -hmm. have to think about gosh i have to be showing live tracking i have to get there within a day or two and amazon in terms of just like again resetting the the bar yeah for engaging with consumers and needs and expectations you take the spirit of what happens in another space and you think about how is that going to influence and impact and what's why was it so successful what's the need that it filled and Mm -hmm. do i have the opportunity in my industry or category to fill that need and when you start thinking like that you can get really further out, I would say, and that's where you kind of pivot to that predictive what's next. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. That okay. reminds me of an expression um, someone, an old coworker of mine said, more from the marketing sales side, but the expression is nobody needs a quarter-inch drill. What they need is a quarter-inch hole, and the right. drill might be the tool that gives them the result they need. So yeah. I think it's interesting that it's sort of – it's all coming together. It's not so much what the thing or the deliverable is. It's the the, the need yeah. that's lurking underneath. Yeah. And, and just building on that, like I think if you look at like what makes up or what are the – what's the skill set of the cool kids club? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's thinkers. Is that the new official title? Yeah. I think yeah. I think we just go with that and, and maybe I'll start recommending that in terms of new, new names. How awesome would that look on a business card? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Manager of cool kids club. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> If I think about what the cool kids, what makes them cool, right, is that they've got this long-term thinking view. They're not scared to look outside their industry and apply things in a way that's maybe a little creative. When you break it down, it's really getting back to kind of consumer needs and and behaviors. They're able to do what you just said, which is take a a challenge or um, in in innovation speak, we call it like a job to be done, the hole in the wall. And and they remove the drill from the equation. And Mm -hmm. they're they're able to say there are multiple ways to get from A to B. I'm only going to focus on B. Whereas a lot of uh, traditional innovators really just focus on that drill. How do I improve that drill? How do I make it faster, lighter? You know, now we got rid of the cord on the drill, Mm -hmm. right? And they're they're calling that. and, And And fairly so, that is a degree of innovation. But to get to the really disruptive out there thinking, you have to think outside the box. So you're looking at challenges in a whole different way. And the other thing that they're doing well that's that's actually gotten a lot of buzz and and I think is is a dead-on diagnosis for why some companies have a a hard time seeing the, the necessity in the Cool Kids Club and or putting resources into it is this like stuck in short-term thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Which is is the other side of, of long-term. But, you know, we have this pressure of quarterly earnings, annual earnings, sure. shareholders, especially in big companies. 
And uh, I I did just quickly pull it up before we were having this chat because I was like, oh, I'm sure this will come up. Only in June, I knew, I read an article about this over a year ago. And then in, in June of this year, uh, Warren Buffett actually posted sort of like a call to action in the Wall Street Journal, just saying, you know, short-term thinking is, is really limiting our economy. And as I read it, I was like, it's, it, it is our economy because companies are getting scared to go public because of those mm-hmm. reasons. And, and it's really kind of limiting uh, our risk appetite. But I would actually take that spirit and, and apply it to innovation. Uh, you just you have to be bold and, and you can't focus on short term. Um, otherwise, you're just going to limit what you can do. So, so I think that those are, are some of the characteristics of those cool kids. Like they're just not afraid either to do things differently, which is great. Yeah, that's always exciting. Yeah. I feel like it's although a very cool one, we've sort of gone down a rabbit hole and I want to bring it back to market research, you mm-hmm. know, since that's our bread and butter, if yes. you will. And sometimes I think market research gets a bad rep, you know, it's seen as kind of maybe stodgy, boring, maybe even old school in some circles. So how do you stay innovative in market research and how do you take, you know, this trend and long term thinking and apply it to yeah. this? seemingly old school industry. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I guess I'm, I specialize in innovation and market research, which almost feels like an oxymoron given our reputation, right? <laughs> so that said, I, I do think there are a lot of exciting things happening in, in market research if if you're paying attention. And obviously I'm biased. What I would say is that we've been known for being kind of stodgy and I think we're at a, a very pivotal moment of step change for the industry, which is really cool. And And if you have been paying attention. You've seen some of that change already coming. If you're starting to look at things in the way that we just talked about, just looking at what's happening in other spaces, trends around me, um, all, all of the tools and the means are, are there for us to evolve, right? So if I were to to pull out the crystal ball that I Yeah, Madam Zandi, yes. tell us our future. <laughs> that I already said doesn't exist. But if I were to apply some of the thinking that I just kind of walked through, what we're seeing happen if we look at other industries and, and, and grab inspiration is, you know, we have kind of tech and, and market research as two sort of orbs colliding, right? So market researchers, traditional market researchers, folks that are executing survey and, and as we do market sizing, et cetera, we are reinventing the way we're doing things and when we're establishing even better practices. But the tech side of things is definitely coming at us fast. Those individuals have created kind of tools in in automation and have also really kind of helped us to think big about big data, very literally, and and kind of predictive analytics. They're bringing... another buzzword we've heard a lot of on on the show and in our chats with different folks here. So tech's, tech's enabling us to do that, right? So they're bringing us the tools to create that step change, right? So this is just a great moment. And what's been happening is that those two sides have been a little bit at odds. Uh, you've got kind of your market researchers who have been a, a bit pure and, and kind of understand client questions and how to apply the information at the end of the day. Um, and then you've got your your tech folks who are coming in with these new cool tools and saying, that's what you're trying to capture. Well, I can I can do that in real time and, and have it on a massive scale using my tools, et cetera. So they're building things. So but is it like a Venn diagram? Like we're going to have this weird eventually, in the middle space? Eventually, yes, yes. Because what's happening is we've, we've had kind of two separate pillars evolving. And in the future, I think those things are just going to overlap in a really big way. Market researchers will be working together with and know enough to talk about the tech side and programming and, and the need of the tool and the application. 
the individual companies that are kind of coming up, uh, whether it's web scrapers or, or social listening in, in another context, et cetera, will be able to then kind of become to a degree market researchers and understand the end application and how it answers questions better to build stronger tools. So I think if we look at the next 10 years, it's watching those two worlds collide in a more real way. And yeah, I think market researchers are going to have to get smart enough to talk tech and mm-hmm. to interact with those both data scientists um, and kind of programming type language or, or technology professionals and tech professionals are going to have to, you know, know enough almost to be dangerous about market research and, and how it works so that we can create sort of a super team in, in the future. Should we say this is like a, a news exclusive? Like you heard it here first. <laughs> Official prediction. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think we're starting to see that in a lot of industries, like even marketing, journalism and seemingly old school industries are already, you know, technologies infiltrating and it's becoming a necessity to know Google Analytics as much as to be a good writer, you know, in my yeah. field. So I think that makes perfect sense, you know, when you talk about it in a in the market research context. Yeah. A few other big things I see on the horizon, I guess, just in terms of continuing down the path of predicting what the future looks like. I mean, as with anything, uh, one of the reasons why why tech is, is fusing and, and getting involved is is not just convenience and, and automation and in the spirit of, of accuracy, which it does bring, but it's also just frankly speed. So it is to a degree kind of uberizing <laughs> market research in the spirit of that. Um, but when you think about well, what does that mean or where, where does that leave us? What's what's the next thing? Which is the way I think about it, right? Just always like what's next and what does that mean and, and where does that take us? Well, anytime you strive to go too far to one side, you go really digital, you go really automated, uh, the other side of that is is just a, a counterbalance. So in the future, market research, the pressure to deliver really great service and, and bring back in the human element is going to be there. It, it, it's not that we're all going to be replaced by robots, which is something I think some people kick around and, and joke about. Yeah, okay, but, Dad, when did you join the show? You know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We'll always have a need, and I, I think just the role of market researchers will change, and, and the way that we consult and engage, it'll be that we're, we're using those tools and all this tech, right? But someone has to make sense of it at the end of the day. Someone has to gut check that the tech is bringing back good, valuable things. And someone has to make the decisions and, and really kind of yeah, what drive do you things. Do with all of exactly. this information that you've exactly. gathered. Yeah. So that will just become a, a more important element and role. Right now, we spend just a ton of time collecting, cleaning, and just getting the information. In the future, it's going to be less about gathering and just more about decision-making, consulting. Or translating almost. Yeah, translating that to the so so what, now what, what's next, right? Hmm. So yeah, so that that's another area. It's just, just the human element. And then the other thing that I think about when I just look at some of the big shifts and trends happening around us is there's just a, a growing skepticism and two-degree fear of tech, right, with the kind of data leaks, et cetera. So there's going to be some issues around privacy and what's collected from consumers, but also in the the era of of fake news, uh, skepticism and, and fear that like, what am I being told? Is it real? Yeah, and who How can you trust? Do, yeah, who can I trust? And and so, one of the things um, that we've been talking about is just there will just be a real need for market research to just be more transparent upfront. You know, even though we had machines grabbing and building this, like this is exactly how it worked, and this is what they grabbed and what it looks like. So. Being able to, at the turn of a dime, go behind the curtain to, to get believability, trust, and then, of course, continue the, the, the conversation to, oh, now I believe it, now what? Like, what do we do with it, right? So 
yeah, this all sounds like really cool stuff to keep an eye out for. I'm curious yeah. to see how it all unfolds and, and comes to fruition. Yeah, and we're seeing snippets. You know, uh, the, the GDPR launch out of the UK was kind of the first, one of the first formalized steps towards towards privacy and trust. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're just, you're starting to see it and we'll only see more of it sure. um, in the, the long term. All right. Well, before we wrap, we like to ask everyone who, who joins us, what is the weirdest thing that you've ever researched? Oh, goodness. Um, okay. Yeah. So I've got like a, a 10-year Rolodex I need to go back through in my head <laughs> uh, across yeah, my experience. Weird might not be the right word, but I, I have a, kind of a favorite project that stands out to me. Let's hear it. And uh, I'll caveat it with the way I think about, or I've always said this to like my colleagues and stuff, I've been like some of my, my favorite spaces to research and just where I love doing projects is is in the vices. Like I love candy. I love, uh, you know, alcoholic beverages. Don't we all? Right? <laughs> exactly. They're just, <laughs> they're just fun categories to, to research, right? Uh, so this was a candy project, but there was a spin on it. Uh, we had a client come to us and needed us to research uh, their products in Mexico. And what was happening was they came to us and said, well, we have a really big problem and, and we need, you know, an objective party to come in and tell us, is it real? And and also just to get to the bottom of it, to tell us how big this problem is and, and also uh, like where we can look to, to figure out why it's happening. And so what it was, was at the end of the day, a, a candy manufacturer in the U.S., a, a iconic U.S. brand. And they were supposed to be selling into Mexico, selling into the U.S. Well, they were finding that over time, when the candy was getting expired here, you know, we have pretty rigid rules around, okay, the date, you pull it off off the shelves, it's done. Mm -hmm. Well, they were finding a bunch of expired candy in Mexico, which they were worried about hurting their brand and, and image and all that stuff. And they were also just like... Like, how is this getting into Mexico? So we went out and, and did some research just to look at, like, validate, like, yeah, there's a expired candy because they will not sell at, at that low quality, right? So they were just trying to figure out, is it happening? How big is it? Like, what are we losing in terms of sales? And more importantly, can you help us trace, like, back up the chain? Like, where is this coming from? So they had it boiled down to, we think it's coming out of, like, discount stores and one of our distributors or two of our distributors are, like, in cahoots and taking this... Uh, this candy, this sort of contraband candy down there. And so- it's like the most PG version of drug smuggling it, or narcos or something It like literally that. was. And this was a moment when I was like, we are legit like corporate spies on a mission to figure out who done it. It was like this like mystery that we needed to help them solve. And, and I think- it's in like the, Nancy Drew in the case of the expired yeah, candy. Yeah. And then <laughs> and it, and it just got more complicated because they had us even interview the distributors, but it wasn't like we were accusing them of anything. So in the end, we had to kind of shortlist, like given what we know objective, like where we found the candy, all this good stuff. Like it might be one of these guys, but we're going to leave it with you from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then more importantly, it is an issue. We think you're losing out on potentially this much in, in sales per year, et cetera. It was, it was just kind of a bizarre scenario. So I don't know if that fits weird, but it was just, it was really interesting. And at the end of that, it was just re- actually really fun because you were just like, it does. It's candy, like you're part of the Scooby it. gang, you know, yeah. like you meddling kids hadn't disrupted my contraband candy business. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It really was. But it was, you know, it was all for the, for the kids. We want them to have really good, fresh candy. So yeah. all, all in uh, moderation. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so. Cool. Well, on that note, Sandy, thank you so much for, for sitting down and walking us through all this. I know these are some like crazy, big picture, predictive topics, but it all makes perfect sense when you talk about it. So thanks. I feel really enlightened <laughs> right now. Best thing I've heard today. <laughs>
And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Behind the Data. We hope you're just as curious as we are and will continue to listen as we dissect data, research, and everything in between, and maybe even make weird predictions about the future. Hey, it's Zandi. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Data. If you're interested in learning more about innovation in market research in particular, I wrote a white paper with former guest Lisa Holmes titled Four Global Trends Disrupting Market Research. Check it out on Euromonitor's blog at blog.euromonitor.com.